you'll stand with me this morning, we're going to read in the word of the Lord to us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 through 13. The word of the Lord says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with the childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been known fully. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, I pray that we would understand the never-failing love that you have, that you've given, that you are. Lord, I pray that we would not diminish love as your word defines love, but Lord, that we would trumpet it from our pulpits in our lives in all that we say and do, that our lives would proclaim the love that your word teaches, that we would not settle for poor substitutes of love or use love in ways that our world defines love as lust and wickedness, Lord. Father, we need your unfailing love today. Teach us, Lord, by your Spirit. Fill me with clarity on your word, Lord, and that I would be pure of heart in my teaching, Lord, that I would be led by your Spirit. Lord, we need you more every day. Guide us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's title is Love, True Love does not fail. You say, well, why did you put true in front? Because, as we've talked about, the world defines love in so many ways that is not what God says is love. So we need to define love according to His definition. Just as If you go and write a paper on a subject and you decide that you're going to use the Wikipedia definition, well, maybe not today, unfortunately. There's no absolutes. They probably like the Wikipedia definition. But when I was in high school, you couldn't use Wikipedia as a source of facts. Why? Because it was constantly changing. There was no set definition. But... With God, there are absolutes, and His definition of love is the one that will stand the test of time. We may change the way we use the word, of, word love in English, but God has not. And there may be some words that we need to change because the meaning of that word has changed so 
dramatically, but love is a word that can only be defined by the one from which it comes, God himself. And that's why love does not fail. It doesn't fail because it is God himself who is love. That doesn't mean he's not just. He loves justice. But God is love. So, Paul begins this section with the obvious ending of the previous. So remember, in this chapter, Paul is trying to show the church at Corinth a better way, a more excellent way. And he's shown them that without love, the gifts are nothing. They're useless. They're unprofitable. And then he describes love to them. A love that can only be described in one man, Christ Jesus. And at the end of that description, he says, love endures all things. Doesn't it sound like in verse 8, when he says love never fails, it's almost like he's reiterating what he said at the very end of his description of love. That is what he is going to prove. If this were a research paper, this here is the thesis. Love never fails. That's what Paul's saying from verse 8 through verse 13. If you, don't, if you leave with nothing else, that is his point. But he's going to explain how this is possible. And we see this in comparison with the fact that the gifts do cease or are done away with. And this is really important because when... He says love never fails. He means love never falls to pieces. It never falls. This word that's translated fail is translated fall everywhere else in the New Testament. And even by Paul, he describes it, uses it to describe those who have fallen into sin or to death. And so love does not fall to pieces. It doesn't have an end or destruction. So the second part of Paul's thesis is love never fails, but gifts will end. Cessationists sometimes try to use these passages for that argument. Unfortunately, they ignore the majority of this text. They ignore the context of the text. But Paul is not creating a battle between love and gifts. That's not his purpose. Instead, Paul is showing us the difference between the two. One will not end... One will not fail, but the other will at one point end. Why? When he says here, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. 
If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. This word translated will be done away with, it's interesting. It is a verb that is future. It's pointing to the future. Not in that moment is Paul talking about this. Not tomorrow, which we'll see. So it's a future event. I believe a future coming of Christ. That's what he's pointing to. And secondly, this word that's translated will be done away with is passive. So if you remember English, if something is passive, who is the one acting? The gifts? No, they're receiving. So it is someone will cause the gifts to cease, to end, to be done away with. And this word can be translated wiped out or abolished. It's strong. It's not some weak language. It's strong language. Paul is saying it will end. Boom. It'll be over. Now, a lot of charismatics start to cringe at this moment because they're like, oh no, where are you going? Because, unfortunately, many Pentecostal churches treat the gifts as the pinnacle the ultimate view of, of spiritual hierarchy. Like once you've once you began to operate in the gifts, you have arrived. Have you experienced that? I think even some in our own group, and I at there was at a point in my life when I felt this way, some of us like to think that once we speak in tongues, we are the we are it. We're Woo! We're on the spiritual high ground. No matter what we say from now on, we're right. I'm sorry, that's not right. And the church at Corinth was the same way. We see their constant bickering among themselves about who's greater. So, the gifts will end. These, these things that are utterly important to the church will at one point end. And who is going to be the cause of this? Is it man? Is it a certain time period? No, it is God Himself. God, before the foundation of the earth, chose to cause the gifts to be for a certain period. Guess what? The last days. Stretching from the day of Pentecost until the second coming of Christ. These gifts will flow. Just like many Pentecostals, the the church of Corinth saw the gifts as proof of a spiritual elitism. Well, if I do these specific gifts, and these were more popular among them, the words of discernment, words of knowledge, um, speaking in tongues and prophecy. Interestingly, remember, when we get to chapter 14, Paul is going to highlight prophecy as a great gift to long for and desire. So Paul isn't throwing 
He doesn't remove prophecy, his, his pet favorite. Not really. Paul seeing the value of prophecy. So he doesn't remove that one from the list so that he can go on in verse 14, chapter 14 and, and argue for it. Because he's not trying to tell them these are useless. He's trying to tell them one will end, which is why it's greater and why this way is better than the gifts themselves. The gifts have a purpose. He isn't arguing that that which is now is lesser. Right? The gifts that will end. But that that which is now and forever, what is that? Love. Must dictate how the Spirit, the Spirit's giftings function in the present life of the church. I want to say that again because I think this is a really important statement. He isn't arguing that that which is now is lesser. What are we talking about? The gifts of the Spirit. But that that which is now and forever must dictate how the Spirit gifting functions in the present life of the church. Love is the dictator, not the other way around. Not in a bad way. But love dictates how the gifts function. So when we begin to function and see the gifts flow in our body, which I expect to happen, then love will be that which dictates its function and moving. Because why are the gifts here? They're for the building up of the church. They're for the strengthening of the church. They're to help us hold fast in the hard days ahead. Paul is not condemning the gifts. He's, instead, he's showing us them in light of eternity. Love is eternal. The gifts are just a tool that God has given to the church or tools for a period of time. At some point, they'll be no longer needed. But they are essential and necessary today in the present time. The fact that we are still in the present where the gifts are one of the ways that God, the Spirit builds up the community is essential. But love must prevail as the reason for all these manifestations of the gifts. It must be primary. I've been reading this commentary by Gordon Fee, and it's such a blessing in this section. That was essentially his statement, just crafted a little bit differently. But he just is constantly reminding us, look, yes, the gifts are great, but look, love is the impetus. It is the driving force for the gifts. That's what Paul is getting at. This more excellent way. So why? 
Why is it that love never fails or, and, and the gifts will end? Why is that? Well, Paul has already thought ahead of you and he tells us in verse 9. It says, For we know, whenever we see four, remember that that's a sign that he's explaining something. He wants us to understand what he just said. So he says, For we know in part. This is, our knowledge is partial. It's, it's only partial right now on this earth. But, in verse 10, he says, but when the perfect comes, something different. So our, our knowledge is partial, and he says, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, and this is where the argument all comes together, right? This is where most cessationists will say, well, the perfect corresponds to the fulfilling of the canon, which is honestly weakens the meaning of this word, to be honest. Not that God's word is not complete, because that's what this word means. When he says perfect here, it's the word teleos, which means perfect, can be translated perfect, but is complete, or end of the age, or total, the end. So when he says the perfect, I don't think Paul could have used another word to describe complete. But he used this word, I believe, to point to the fact that it was referring to the second coming, to the end of time. Some also, uh, Wesleyans for example, they say the perfect corresponds to... um, each person, individually. Which again, is if we read this passage again, we don't see that. We don't see that that's what Paul is talking about. Paul is arguing for the second coming. When Christ returns... You say, well, how do you get there? Just wait. We're taking it slow. We're not going to jump ahead to verse 12 as much as I would like to to make my argument because we'll get there and you'll see it. But he is arguing for the coming of Christ. When the complete comes. Now think of this word complete. The end of the age. When the end has come, it will complete all that God has purposed in this earth from the beginning of creation to then. What will be complete then as well? His church. Think about that. His bride will be ready. They will have oil in their lamps eagerly awaiting their Savior. Every one of them and those who made it will be there. 
There won't be a question from that point forward who's in his church. Who are the wheat and the tares anymore? It will be evident. The church itself will be complete as a whole. So when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. This word translated partial is actually the word here translated in part. But he just adds an article to it. So he just puts the in front of it. The in part will be done away with. That partial knowledge that we have now that the Spirit by by the grace of God is illuminating to us That'll be done away with. Because the greater will come. It'll be magnificent. Again, it's the same word. This done away with is the same word that talks about the gifts. So the gifts are just a partial endowment of something that's coming. That's greater, far greater. This whole passage hinges on verse 10, I I feel like. Because if we don't understand that the perfect has, when the perfect comes, we won't understand the rest of this passage. We need to come down. If you don't agree with me that it's referring to the second coming, you need to find out why you believe something differently. I'm not the final authority, the Word of God is. But you need to know what you believe about this passage. Because if you don't, you won't understand anything that Paul's saying here. It's important for us as believers to come to an understanding of those important passages of Scripture. So, when that perfect comes, the partial, that which is in part, will be done away with. Which is interesting. Does this strike you in some way, what Paul's saying here? I, I was reading this and I thought, Paul is actually prophesying right now. He's telling us something that's going to happen in the future. God has shown him. Now, it, this doesn't matter what stance you fall on, but Paul is being shown by God that one day when the perfect comes, wherever you fall on that list, that the partial will be done away with. He has been shown by God that this is going to someday end. And so he's prophesying it to the church in this letter. Pretty interesting. He's, he's about to argue for prophecy, and he's saying, look, this, this should edify us, right? This is a prophecy So we should be edified by the fact that love never fails. It should encourage us. It should build us up. And and the fact that the gifts are one day going to end should not be a discouragement to us. They should also encourage us and build us up. So Paul is concerned that maybe we don't understand what he's saying. So he decides to give us a really good analogy. 
So verse 11, he says, When I was a child. Interesting, this word translated child is used by Paul multiple times, not only in Corinthians, but throughout the New Testament by others, to describe an immature Christian. Yeah, it's the same um, word. It's actually the root word for nepotism in English. Child, babe. So Paul actually uses it here in Corinthians to describe the church and their immaturity. It's really an insult to them. So he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, or I I spoke like a child. Or, I thought like a child. I thought as a child thinks. I reasoned like a child. Think, wait, what's the difference between thinking like a child and reasoning like a child? Well, think about it like this. Your kids will share their thoughts with you. They don't make sense. Why? Because they made a plan that didn't make sense. So reasoning is, this word translated reasoning or reason is to make a plan like a child. Have your kids ever told you what they want to do when they get older? Maybe tomorrow or next week or uh, years down the road? And you're like, "Uh, you might want to work on that plan. You know, if, if they took that plan to a, a bank to get a loan, uh, no bank is going to admit that one, right? They're going to be like, uh, I think you need a little more, a little more uh, clarity here before you go ahead with the plan. But that's honestly why most children get in so much trouble because their plan has many faults. And when you come to them and say, why did you do this? It may not have been something you had ever told them not to do because you never thought that that was a a thought that could go through someone's head. Okay, maybe some of you have never experienced this. Maybe your kids have always done things that you thought kids did. I feel like I remember when I was a kid, somebody pouring honey over another child's head. Maybe mom would have to remember. Maybe we didn't, we kept that from mom. Who knows? (laughs) But what is usually the response when your kids do something that's just so crazy to you and I? What do they usually say? It sounded like a good idea. They thought it was a good idea, so they made a plan. Okay, huh. Let's see what happens when we pour honey on one another's head or. Smear peanut butter all over, or uh, those of you who know what uh, diaper rash cream is, uh, we had an experience where they thought it would be fun to smear it all over the window, which, by the way, is very difficult to get off. I still don't know why they put it on there. I think we've broken past that period, but um, our children do many things that make no Sense. It's like they didn't reason well. Because they're, they're growing. They're learning. 
They're becoming more mature. This is what Paul is pointing at. Children are all still learning, which, which is why it's so hard for parents sometimes. Maybe it's just me. But I have a hard time with some of the things my kids do because I forget that they're still learning. I forget that they don't have the knowledge that I have as a father because of all the years of experience that I have. And that I probably did similar things, even though I'm sure I was the model child. Um, my, my mom would definitely uh, go against that. But um, maybe the model child of what children do in ignorance. <laughs> so what Paul's saying is, look, when you're a child, you're reasoning, you're thinking, you're speaking. It's partial. It's, it's not full. It's not complete because you haven't been given all the information yet. Now, if I give my kid a saw and just send him outside, what would happen? Who knows what could happen? But likely there's going to be fewer limbs at, at minimum in their body. I'm not talking about the yard, you know. But there's going to be, there's going to be blood and all that. But if I begin to train my child and slowly teach them to use the saw, at some point when I feel like they are mature and they understand how to use that, then they will be trustworthy and they can have full use of that saw. Or maybe I'm, I could teach my kids to shoot a gun. I could start today, but I'm not giving my kids a 9mm pistol today, right? Yeah, they may be fun to shoot, but I'm not giving that to a kid. What are we going to start out with? Some, some little carbine um, BB guns. I'm trying to remember the... We used one this weekend. I can't remember the name of it, but the Red Rider. Is it Red Rider? The, yeah, so the Red Rider ones, you know, that you pump action. I can, I can trust my kids mostly... I still have to teach them, okay, you don't point this at somebody. What's the number one rule? Don't shoot a person. You know, there's, there's lots of things we have to teach them. But we start with a partial. It's not a real gun, but it can still hurt someone, right? If you, if you shoot somebody in the right spot, with, an, with a, you can put, a, put an eye out. You can, you can do a lot of damage with one. So, but it's not as dangerous as a real gun. 9mm pistol or a rifle, it's unlikely that you kill someone with BB. So I'm giving them something that is like the real thing, but it's just partially. I hope these pictures help. But that's what Paul's saying. He says, when I became a man, I did away with Childish things. He is the same verb that he uses here, I did away with, is the exact same ver verb that he's talking about. The gifts were done away with. The partial is done away with. When we become a man, then there's 
we begin to think more clearly. Our speaking is more, should be, unless you watch some athletes who don't seem to know how to speak better than a child. Unfortunately, this is a side note, rabbit trail, I'll try not to go down too far, but we aren't expecting our children to be men or women. We're not training them to be men or women anymore in our nation. And it's no wonder they're acting like children. It's no wonder that their reasoning abilities are suspect at best. It's no wonder because they are being taught to think like outside of the, the, this world. They're so far outside the box that I don't know if you could get them back in the box. God in His grace can do that, but our world has come to the place where childhood extends through teenage years, which, don't get me started on the term teenager, um, but we use that term to actually allow children to kind of continue to wallow in their childishness instead of using their teenage years to form them into the men and women that God has called them to be. Teenage years should be formative years, not party years. Oh, we'll, we'll let you... So what's happening? People are maturing slow, more slowly, and so their 20s are actually the years that they form... And unfortunately, they already have so many bad habits. They have 20 years of bad habits that they have never overcome and never been challenged to change that when they get into a job, they're like, Hey, what do you want with that? Oh, cheeseburger fries? Have you ever had that happen? They can't function as adults because... They haven't been expected to function as adults. Okay, back on the trail. The, the main way that we're talking. <laughs> I just thought about that. doesn't have anything really to do with the sermon other than just something I was thinking about. Essentially, Paul is saying, what is appropriate for a child is not appropriate for an adult. Right? There's some behavior that children do, like... Have you ever had your kids strip down naked and walk around the house? Not because you told them to do it, but, I mean, James is especially bad about that. You're like, thankfully he's moved mostly past that stage. But, um, but if, you, if an adult just stripped down naked in your house with guests there, you would be appalled, right? Because that behavior does not... It's not the same. So things that children do is not appropriate for adults. Paul is giving us this picture. So, when the perfect comes, it it does away with the partial. So how does the perfect cause this to happen? Oh, good news. Paul already thought of this question, and so he's ready in verse 12 to tell us. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
What is it that causes the partial good to go? I believe it's seeing God face to face. Seeing Christ for who He is. Because what does it say? Remember the passage where it says, when we meet Him in the sky, we will be, what does it say? Like Him, or like He is. Complete. That is what He's talking about. When we see Jesus face to face, we will be changed into His image. And it's important that we think through this. So he says here, for now, in this moment in time, we see in a mirror dimly. Well, mirrors are a lot better now than a few hundred years ago. Right? But, interestingly, Corinth was known for their the finest brass mirrors of the time. I mean, just, I didn't know that brass was used as a mirror until I was doing this. But I bet those things were shiny and pretty good reflection. So, Paul wasn't insulting mirrors, because that would have not gone over so well with the, the Corinth mirror makers. But what Paul is saying, I would rather translate this word dimly as the word indirectly. In a mirror. Paul is pointing us to the fact that what we see now is indirect. It's not, it's a reflection, but it's not the fullness that we're going to see face to face. So here's, a, here's some analogies. How many of you would prefer to see a loved one in a photo than in person? Everyone here, right? No. Why? Because a photo doesn't do justice. Just ask a military wife. What, she's got a photo of her husband, and maybe she even gets to FaceTime or whatever um, video call app she uses. But it does not replace her husband face-to-face. Or... How many times have you heard of someone losing a spouse and they'll, they'll kiss the photo of their, their loved one, but it doesn't replace the face-to-face relationship? I think this is an interesting thing that God has created us in this way. We can't replace someone with a physical object because God has created us to be relational, to be in proximity to one another. So, we would never seek to take a photo to replace our husband or wife. Hopefully not. If so, we can talk about some counseling, if you'd like. Or even FaceTime. I mean, I remember when FaceTime came bursting through the doors, and everyone was so excited. Hey, I can video call. I mean, there was already, uh, what's the? Skype, yeah. So Skype had been around for a while, but now I could actually video call somebody on my phone directly. That was pretty cool. I could carry it around, because before on Skype, you could only do it on a computer that was tethered 
to to internet. And so, and you had to have a video camera. And so, yeah, that that was great when we lived in Guatemala. It was nice to be able to video chat family, but I guarantee you it was not better than personal. It was great, but it wasn't a full experience of being in the presence of our loved ones. I mean, just imagine not being able to hug someone you love. There's something in a hug that you can't transfer over a phone. Oh, let's do a, an air hug. Yeah, we do those things, or we'll do right over the phone. We, we try to send kisses like that, but they don't substitute for true physical face-to-face interaction. So when Paul says we see in the mirror dimly, he's speaking of that indirect view. We don't when we see a picture we say, "Oh yeah, that is so and so," but really is that the full measure of that person? That's just a reflection actually, right? Cuz photos are taken by a camera that has mirrors. Well, nowadays we have technology that has changed that, but that's how photographs began. It was a mirror that was projected onto a piece of paper and you had an image. I mean, whoever thought that up was absolutely ingenious. But, and when they figured out how to do it with color, that's even more incredible. And then now we have technology that does pixels. Many, many images that are being recorded. This word that is translated dimly is actually the, the word enigma. We all know what that means, right? I mean, that person is an enigma to me. They're a mystery. They're, so there's still a lot of mystery in, the, in our understanding of God. There's still a lot. The Holy Spirit has, by God's grace, illuminated our eyes to so much truth. But there's still, the, the crazy thing is, there's so much more that we cannot even imagine to explore. A finite God. And when we see him face to face, that infinitude will be before us. Yet, the crazy thing is, we're going to spend eternity with God, which means we're going to spend an eternity getting to know an infinite God. Somehow, if there were days in heaven, every day we would learn something new. I don't know how time works in eternity, if time goes away or if time if that's something that's held over and we still have a sense of time i don't know let me know when you get there no we'll all be there right i pray so what paul is indicating right now we don't see directly we don't see face to face but when we see him jesus christ face to face then the partial will be done away with. We won't need the partial. It's like Carl Barth said this, which I thought was a really good saying. 
He says, because the sun rises, all the lights go out. It's a really good point, right? When the sun comes up, you don't need imitation suns anymore. Because have you ever tried to use a headlamp in full daylight outside? Can you even see the light produced by that headlamp? Not if you're walking through a field that has no trees or shade. And even in a shaded forest, you would barely see the light. Why? Because the sun is so much more powerful. So when the Son of God is seen face to face, we won't need imitations anymore. We'll have the full thing. We won't need the partial anymore. And Paul isn't just, like I said, Paul is not just using this as an analogy, a mirror versus face to face. It is an analogy, but he's also speaking to the fact that it will be a person, Jesus Christ, that we see face to face. And when that happens, the gift of the Spirit will no longer be needed. will be complete. That's the point of the gifts. The whole point that Paul has been saying, the gifts are to complete us, to bring us to completion, to bring us together as a church, to make us one in Christ and whole built up into a group of people, a building, all working together. When that completeness comes, we don't need that anymore. So, he continues. He says, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. So, while the knowledge now is partial, it's going to be full knowledge, not omniscience like God, but a finite fullness of knowledge. This word translated fully is actually a compound verb. It's two words put together, and it's this idea of knowledge that is complete, exactly or through and through. It's not going to be a partial knowledge anymore. It's going to be complete. Why? Because it's going to mirror... What does he say here? He says, But then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. By who? God. God knows us completely. So our knowledge will be similar. Yes, it won't be infinite, but it will be a finite full knowledge because when we see him face to face you'll never forget that remember Moses he couldn't even look at the face of God he had to look at his backside he just had a partial vision of God and it was so powerful that his face was radiant and scared the people so much they were like Hey, Moses, can you cover your face? Because, oh, that's too much. It's too much passion for us. You've experienced God's face.
Paul comes to the end of this passage. There's a lot of debate here about, oh, do faith and hope disappear in the end? I don't think so because he says, but now. I think he's, he's using now here as a fact. So like sometimes we use the word now. So we could say, but now in fact, faith, hope, and love abide. Abide. They're not going away. They're continuing. These three, they abide. But, it's a big but here, but the greatest of these is love. It's interesting here, Paul is using this word greatest, which is typically used to compare, but he's using it as a superlative to bring to, to highlight love is greater. Not to... Put down hope and faith. So I've always struggled with this passage because in a sense, faith and hope, when we see Christ, we don't need them. Need it, right? In a sense. But I don't think he's saying it's going away. I think that he's saying it will change. It'll be different. Because we will see Him. So... Here's a question. If you talk to someone face-to-face and they tell you something, do you stop having faith in them because you saw them face-to-face? No. Do you stop hoping that someone will do something because they, you saw them face-to-face? No. There's a sense that because you saw them face-to-face, oh, that makes more sense. Like, How many of you have had somebody tell you over the phone, oh yeah, I've got that in store? Okay, maybe just me. And you got there and they didn't? Have you ever had somebody tell you that face to face and not had it? No, because they go and get it and bring it to you. But you you trust them much more in person because it's a lot easier to lie through the phone. They probably think, well, maybe if they come here, then they'll buy something else that's not quite as, either not quite as good or a lot more expensive and way better than what they really need. So I'm just going to tell them that we have it and, and not deal with it. So let's look at faith and hope and see how, in a way, yes, we've, we already see that, yes, it's, there's definitely a sense in which an aspect of faith is no longer need in heaven. We don't have to believe that heaven is real anymore. We don't have to believe that God is real or that Christ is real anymore because we see Him. We are experiencing heaven. But So faith is the evidence of things not seen. However, it is also a trust in God. So what does that mean? So this trust is... Committed to serving God in fear. Not, oh, no. It's a faith that God will do 
what he said. That you will spend eternity. You know, if there was a day, if there was, if there are days in heaven, you don't wake up the next morning. Oh no, I hope that God doesn't kick me out. No, you have faith that God is who He said He was, and so you're you're never in fear that He's going to kick you out of heaven because you believe Him, you trust Him, you serve Him because you trust Him. So I think that there. So, just think about this. Can you imagine a time in eternity where you will not be trusting God in His grace to continue to show His grace and thus allowing you to live in His presence? I can't think of a moment when I will say, oh, I got here on my own. We'll still be trusting in the power of Christ while we're there. We'll be worshiping Him for that. So there's a sense in that faith does not end. What about hope? Well, Paul actually kind of clues us into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. He says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ is only to be hoped in for this life, then we to be, we're to be pitied. So there's a sense that Paul is saying that hope is not just an anticipation of the things to come, the blessings to come. D.A. Carson says, he says, it's an anticipation no longer needed once these blessings have arrived, but a firm anchor in Christ Himself. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in God, in Christ, and as such, hope continues forever. So, I've just dismantled most people's view of this, my own, even as I studied. So then how is love greater? Right? If faith and hope have an eternal aspect to them, how are they greater? How is it that love can be greater? And I would say this, with the help of D.A. Carson, he said, Something along the lines. It is foundational. Love is foundational. It is the ground upon which all else is laid. So here. Can we say that God is faith? Have you ever heard somebody say that? I've never heard it. Okay. No. He is the object of faith. What about hope? Do you ever hear people say God is hope? Not necessarily. He is the object of hope. See, both of these are objects that they look to God in faith. They look to God in hope. When we speak of hope, we, we're looking at God as hope. And He gives it through His Spirit and in demonstration of love. Because not everyone believes Not everyone has put their hope in Christ. But the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to the love of God and caused us to believe and to hope in Him. Do you see the difference? Love is the foundation of these two. But we 
How many times even non-Christians or liberal people will say, Oh, but God is love. <laughs> it's like their favorite verse from the, the whole Bible. Because they define love differently. But it's true, God is love. Not defined by the world standards, but God is love. It is His character. And it is from this infinite love that we learn to love and to live in love. Can you imagine how much greater our love will be when we see Him face to face? Those of you who have were... Well, it's kind of different. So when I was dating Megan, we lived two hours apart. So we have to FaceTime. And while talking to her on FaceTime was good, and my love grew, but being with her in person caused my love to grow even greater. Because I got to experience everything that meant being around and with her. I sense that that's what it's going to be like. When we come to completion, we see Christ for who He fully is, we're going to be in greater awe and just, oh my Lord, I love you so much. That love will become even greater. And it will never fail because for it to fail would mean God would have to fail. But lest you leave in horror and thinking, oh, the gifts are done. Think about this. Gordon Fee says this. He says, love does not eliminate the gifts in the present. Rather, it is absolutely essential to, to Christian life both now and forever. What's essential? Love. The gifts, manifestations, on the other hand, are not forever. They are to help build up the body in the gathered assembly of God's people, but only in the present, when such edification is needed. We don't need to be built up when we see Christ for who He is because we'll be complete. We need Him now. The gifts are not an optional thing for a healthy church. They are necessary and needed. We should be hungering and thirsting for this. He says something else that I thought was very telling. The way that we talk about the Spirit and the gifts in our lives, or the way that we think, what are, what are those, what is that saying about us? Are we essentially saying, we can get along quite well without the Spirit in the present age? Now that the church has achieved its maturity in orthodoxy, now we, we've got good doctrine now, we, we understand this and we understand that, so we, we really don't need the Spirit anymore. We might as well be cessationists, because that's what they believe. Which is 
Not to be offensive to some of them is ridiculous. The church is continuing to grow. We are continuing to come to completion. God is drawing His church together. He's drawing people from all over the world to be a part of the global church, but more essentially to their local churches. And we can't, let me say that again, we can't get along quite well without the gifts of the Spirit. That's why I've been preaching this series, because I think it is essential to our growth as a church. But if we are not being motivated, if we are not living in love, then who cares about this message of spiritual gifts? Because it will be useless. It will not build us up. It will only create supernatural heroes in the church. Instead of looking to Christ. So if we leave this series and you think that spiritual gifts are the ultimate tier of Christian living, you're wrong. The ultimate tier of Christian living is learning to love like Jesus. And in that, when the gifts begin to flow and we are loving one another, loving the world as Christ did, we'll see health in the church. We'll see a church that is functioning properly because love is the driving force behind all that we do. We need His Spirit desperately. But if we're trying to do it outside of loving one another and loving God primarily, then it will only lead to some spiritual ministry that gets a lot of followers but doesn't draw people to Christ that they become the popular one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love for us does not fail. That when we see you face to face, we don't have to worry about whether you'll get tired of us or want to get rid of us in time. Because, Lord, you loved us. You gave your life so that your church us, and churches all over our country and the world around us would come to you, that we would be built up, symbols of God's grace and mercy, hoping and trusting in your power, churches, Lord, that live for you. Lord, in your love, you gave not only your son, but you gave your spirit to us to empower us in the gifts so that we can be built up with you as the head glorifying you. Lord, if we are allowing other things to motivate our desire for the gifts, if we're allowing other things to motivate our desire to even be here together, Lord, expose that. 
give us your love for one another, your love for the lost. Give us sacrificial love that is willing to die so that the lost can hear the gospel. Draw us to yourself, we pray. Help us not to forget our first love. Lord, move by your Spirit in our midst, we pray. We long, we need your gifts to flow here. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.